Welcome back to Check This Please, the podcast where gender is a spectrum. Today, we're talking about Check Please the webcomic, strip number 1.23, Dibs, which was originally posted on September 20th, 2014. There is no blog post for this strip. I'm Secret OMG. Who are you? I'm Tomato. Hello, hello. Hi, Tomato. Let me tell you about this strip. On a sunny day in the spring of Eric Biddle's freshman year, ellipsis, exclamation point. Biddy comes out to the house, front yard, where Holster is barbecuing, I guess, some hamburgers or something. The disgusting green couch is out on the lawn. And our merry crew is hanging out. And Biddy says that Johnson just gave him dibs. Everyone looks at him shocked. To which Biddy says, um, oh gosh, I'm sorry. I know this is Samwell, but I have no idea how that could have been offensive. Let's unpack that later. Then there is a sort of series of panels in which Ransom, Holster, and Shitty all explain what they did to get dibs. At which point Biddy screams, what are dibs? And Jack explains that it means Biddy gets Johnson's room in the house next year. And then there's a little like hockey shit with Ransom and Holster with Lardo and Shitty describing dibs as the ancient Samuel hockey housing system where seniors bestow upon underclassmen the honor of living in the greatest abode known to living man. They switch to the matrix E space in which there is a blackboard that Lardo is using to draw the house for God knows what reason. Jack confusedly looks around saying, did I just hear a theme song? As Ransom and Holster explain to Biddy sort of the dib system. And we get a little overview of the house that Lardo has drawn. They all explain that, yeah, okay, hooray. Now Biddy gets to stay in the house until he graduates, unless I guess he chooses to leave, but that apparently would never happen. So it's not addressed. And then last but not least, we get little sort of like cartoon faces of shitty Ransom, Biddy, and Jack making, I guess, funny comments about this. And that's it. That's what happens. Tomato, why do we care if Biddy lives in this house? Well, we care on one hand because Jack Zimmerman lives there and it's obvious that he wants to touch Jack Zimmerman's butt and Jack wants to kiss Biddy, and this will presumably give us a background for this to happen. However, why do we care about the fucking layout, or like how Biddy ends up there, or this arcane process that will have like literally no meaning in the rest of the story except as yet another ritual that is walked through every year for basically no reason? Um, I don't know. Why do we care about it? So like, there's this guy on LiveJournal, and when I say there's this guy on LiveJournal, I mean, I think he probably has not updated his LiveJournal for... I don't know, four, five years, maybe a lot more. I'm not sure. His name is Mike Smith. Are you familiar with Mike Smith? Why would you be? Well, here's why maybe. He didn't like the Harry Potter books and he read all of them chapter by chapter and basically reviewed them. He really hated them. This gave me great pleasure when I was, I was going to say a child, but I guess I was like older than a child, strictly speaking. The comment that he used to make about the Harry Potter books was that these books are imprisoned in their own format. I mean, he used to say a lot of things, a lot of it very mean. But one of the sort of trenchant comments he used to make was that the books were imprisoned in their own format because every single year, the book had to start at the same point and it had to end at the same point 
and it had to hit the same milestones and the whole thing was pegged to the school year in such a way that didn't really necessarily translate to the kind of storytelling that was happening in the later books. I have long thought that Check, Please has perhaps a similar problem. I guess the question is, can you tell a story which is about a coming of age in a school environment which is not pegged to the endless ritual of the school year? I think the answer is yes. However, does Check, Please do this? No. Well, I think, although there isn't that much meat in this particular strip, we are sort of butting up against the question of if you want to have Biddy progress, you naturally need to see him advancing through something or time passing in some way. And the fact that he's moving from the dorms into the house, he started the comic sort of iffy about the boys, but now he's going to be living with the boys, possibly as Mrs. Boy, you know, that marks progress in a certain kind of way. At the same time, you can sort of feel how, in many senses, this strip or this comic wants to just kind of like spin its wheels and show a bunch of people making goofs and reveling in college and hockey team culture. And I feel like you can have a story about college that is relatively open-ended if it's not pegged to any kind of particular timeline. But then it feels weird if you change the status of something. So like if you have a sort of timelineless, open-ended, everything is always happening in the same nondescript season, in the same nondescript school year, if you do something like move Biddy from his dorm into the house, that can be kind of jarring because it's a demonstrative status change. Whereas the way that Check, Please functions now, the status changes are the substance of the comic, so to speak. Yeah, that's true. And I, I think there could actually be some theoretical comic or writing out there which starts as that slice of life, endless present moment and then shifts into a structured kind of story in a meaningful way. Check Please doesn't really do that. Not really in a meaningful way is what I would say. I think my problem with the sense of ritual in Check Please that I didn't used to have because I didn't know where the comic was going. And now that I see where the comic is going, the ritual, the sort of meaning of the ritual has been drained. But rituals have meaning for a couple of reasons, right? I didn't do any sort of research about this. So no lit theory this time, but I'm sure someone out there has written about this. One of the things that rituals and rites of passage and other sorts of moments of great meaning, one thing they do obviously is mark time. One thing they do is allow these moments of reflection. As you say, this is a moment to reflect how Biddy is different now than when we first met him, how he's changed and how he is so much more integrated into the team and how he's really looking forward to his MRS in a way that he just didn't know he was going to get, you know, at the beginning of all of this. So, so it's effective for that way. And I would say that actually, even though I've poked fun a little bit at some of the rituals of year one. I actually think because at this point, this is still a coming of age story, which does seem to have some kind of growth. They work fairly effectively. This strip is shoehorned in in many ways. So it's not as effective as say the team awards, which itself had, as we discussed, some problems. But they're both fairly meaningful gestures about Biddy becoming more integrated into the hockey team that are backed up by other things happening in the comics. So they are fairly effective. However, because I now know how the comic ends, 
ends. And I understand that these rituals are not being even especially celebrated by the end. They just become this drudgery that you must go through because this is how one gets to one's perfect kitchen in the suburbs or whatever. They become less joyful. I think this ritual still feels a little bit joyful. And so it has a purpose to it in a particular way. Yet, I don't know, because I know the ending, I've lost patience for them. The thing about Harry Potter, not to get into Harry Potter, but the thing about Harry Potter, which I had great affection for and have lost affection for over the years, although still have great affection for certain parts of it. Anyway, the thing about Harry Potter is that at least on the outset, the first few books were for children. And you might notice that when you read a book for children, it often has particular predictable beats. And this is for several reasons. In part, it's because it makes it easier to market. In part, it's because of the legacy of children's literature and people thinking children are stupid who can't handle complicated narrative. And in part, it's because for some kids, actually, those predictable plot beats are really comforting. And this is something they see. Maybe it's chicken or egg, I don't know. But it's part of the genre, and so it's something that kids seek out. See, all of the fucking children's series I read, like ballet shoes, and then skating shoes, and then circus shoes, and then theater shoes, which is like not the same as ballet shoes, even though they both involve the theater. Don't worry about it. And then a lot of other shoes books. Those stories are books that I loved and follow a extremely predictable pattern. Check, please. As we've discussed, in fact, is not Harry Potter. By the way, Secret wrote a really good essay about this on our Tumblr, so you should go read it. Check, please, is not Harry Potter for many reasons in part because it's not for children. So in fact, the people reading it should probably be able to deal with kind of more sophisticated narrative. The last thing I will say is that romance books also follow extremely predictable beats. This is part of romance story. There are different kinds of romance stories and different kinds of predictable beats, but they follow predictable beats. I think maybe what I'm getting at here is that this is a romance comic, but it's following the beats of a children's book. And these two things coming together are giving me cognitive dissonance. I think the main thing I take away from your thoughts is, isn't it kind of homophobic, misogynistic that we never talk about how Jack also got his MRS degree at college? You're so right. Here's what I'll say. Jack got his MRS degree basically in hockey graduate school. At least he'd been out of college for a little while. Yeah, but basically what he got out of college was... I, you're right. You're right. I'm so sorry that I have fallen into the trap of not thinking of Jack as the missus in this relationship. Yeah, Jack is the missus boy. That's right. Biddy, well, well, let's talk about that another time. But yeah, high key agree. I feel like the special episode we do on that is going to be like a six-parter. More opinions about Jack Zimmerman's feminine mystique at another time. <laughs> All right, well, the, the, speaking of which, the next thing on the outline is you wrote, Jack is a bad captain, question mark, and I responded, Jack sucks. Well, here's the thing. In the last panel, I I mean, at this point, we're all agreed, right? We don't care about hockey anymore. Yeah, hockey's around. Yeah, hockey culture's around. I care about hockey. You care about hockey. I guess the characters supposedly care about hockey. Hockey will be part of the story. However, the sort of hockey culture that's getting examined is going to be of decreasing focus over the next three years. Justice for the Chicago Blackhawks, who today, the date of this recording, were knocked out of the NHL playoffs. Why are you clowning? That's bad. What are you, a Golden Knights fan? Let's move on. I would never be a Golden Knights fan, although I do think the Golden Knights are funny as a team. My regional team, no one cares about them, so let's not worry about it. The reason I asked, is Jack a bad captain, is because in the last panel, Biddy says, oh, and we can have big team dinners. <gasps> 
at brunch, y'all. I'm so excited. Here's the thing. Team dinners are such a fundamental part of sports team culture. They happen from literally the least varsity high school sports team that exists through recreational teams in adulthood that people just do for fun, through the NHL, through whatever. So my question is, this classic of team togetherness, this is a classic way to build like, okay, boys, let's eat this pasta and then let's really get out there tomorrow, right? This is a way to build a team camaraderie. Why the fuck are they not doing this already? That's crazy. They all live on fucking college campus. Go to the dining hall together. This is insane. Jack's bad captaincy coming to the fore that he has not organized team dinners, which he would hate, but you would think he would understand as a cornerstone of team dynamics. Thank you. I think that because Jack has trigger warning food issues, he just can't deal with it. You would think that at least he would be like, okay, everybody else go to the team dinner and then I'll be there for five minutes and then I'm going to drop my water all over myself, go to the bathroom and leave. I would just like you to know that Secret just did some like really good miming of the various ways that Jack could drop his water on himself. It's really good. One thing that I've picked up from doing this podcast is that we really don't see Jack doing very much to be the captain of this team. And I don't honestly recall him doing very much the next year either. I'm not totally sure why this is. I guess the comic just expects us to not care or not think about it or maybe, you know, it's just implied that he's good at it or whatever. But something I'm finding surprising in in going back and rereading is that you'd think there'd be some comic where Jack gives a speech to the team other than the speech where he's accepting the captaincy. He doesn't do anything. I mean, he does checking clinic with Biddy, and that's part of being the captain, but we never see him making any gesture to the team as a collective. So to the point that the comic is not really about hockey, I mean, even though we have this hockey shit explainer comic here butting into the story, the mechanics of the hockey team are not part of the comic at all. So on that note, you know, I don't know how much I have to say about this particular point, but it's weird that this is a comic that is technically part of the main storyline. It's not hockey shit five, it's 1.23. And if you're going through the books or clicking through on the Tumblr, you just get to this strip naturally in the sequence of comics. It's not a hockey shit comic. But if you look at the archive on the Tumblr page, it's listed with the hockey shit comics and it's not listed with the main storyline. And then you have this atypical comic. It does not start with a blog from Biddy, which again, I think the fact that it's barely noticeable when the vlogs aren't present is indicative of how you don't need them. Try to imagine the first panel of this comic and what it would add to this strip. It would basically be Biddy sitting in his room at the house or his old dorm room or wherever the fuck and basically saying, hey y'all, the craziest thing happened to me. Johnson, that weird goalie, came and said I could have his dibs. And then it would cut to Biddy walking up to the group and saying the rest of the strip as follows. 
the fact that we have this non-traditional strip that doesn't fit the format and then all of a sudden in the middle of the strip it turns into this fourth wall breaking meta-textual device that up until this point and from this point on exists entirely separately from the main storyline of the comic is just a bit weird and it interrupts things. And I think it's also interesting that within the comic itself, characters, including Shitty, he hangs a lampshade on the sort of deus ex machina of Johnson offering Biddy dibs to kind of move the story along. And we also have Jack commenting on like, what's happening? What is this? It's basically the comic is pointing out the kind of artificiality of what's happening in the story, I think. I think that's exactly what's happening. And I think this kind of thing is part of why I am as interested in conventions of form and genre in this comic in the way that Ngozi is and is not using them. It's because of moments like this that I think if you're going to include it at all, do something with it. If you're not going to do anything with it, that's fine. Tell a good story where you're not commenting on the genre because if you're just commenting on the genre and then you don't do anything with it it's to me at least as a reader it's really frustrating I don't dislike this sort of thing this sort of wink at the audience fourth wall crossing stuff is stuff that I'm into and think is fun and funny and interesting and worthwhile but it doesn't go anywhere like okay haha this is a romance comic with things being set up by the author but there's not any kind of subversion or cleverness the resolution of the story there's no cleverness there at all it's like sentimental to the point of being unbearable for me personally, compared to at least the sort of good-natured wink at the audience that we get in this particular strip. I also think there's something interesting in the way that this kind of thing, this kind of disruption of the text made me think Ngozi was either a smarter or braver writer than I think maybe she actually turned out to be. And by smarter, I don't mean she's not smart. I'm sure she's smart. And by brave, I don't mean she's not brave. I'm sure she's brave, whatever. What I mean is that Check Please ultimately does not actually question any of the social issues that are raised in it. And we've discussed that at length and we'll continue to discuss it. So I don't go, need to go into it here. But for me, the reason that I kind of had real faith that it would question those things is because of this deus ex machina, very stylistically artificial meta commentary on romance itself. I thought Ngozi was setting that up so that she could use this sort of thing as a puncture in the inflation kink that is romance novels. I'm sorry that I said that, but I've said it now, so here we are. But she doesn't. She questions and pokes at and winks at the existence of artificiality and then embraces it in a way that's not even campy. It's just grim. And if you're going to embrace artificiality in a way, not to get into one of our topics, is Checkley's camp that we may someday discuss on a special episode. But there's something about this winking quality of this moment that seems to me like it could kind of be a joyfully satirical look at the way romances are set up. And instead, there's no satire in Checkley's at all. It is played completely straight. And that is really depressing to me for reasons that we'll talk about as we go. I would like to make the point that this comic really should have gone before the last comic. And look, it's not that big a deal. Doesn't fucking matter. Maybe this is in fact evidence that Ngozi is in fact 
at this point realizing she introduced material that she hadn't explained and she needed to like backtrack and explain it i don't know but in terms of a sort of editing narrative standpoint the previous comic should have been the last comic of year one that's the thing that has emotional weight in it and ending on this goofy metaphysically weird comic doesn't have the same kind of of heft. I think it also, yeah, I mean, it does sort of bookend the fact that at the start of the year, Biddy was wary of the other guys on the team and he didn't know what was going to happen. And here we're finding out that he's moving into the house and they're all going to have dinners and actually he does fit in. But I think the point is made more effectively and in a way that actually ties into the larger emotional core of the story when it's just Biddy and Jack one-on-one having that interaction. So like it should have been this was 1.22 and that was 1.23. Again, in the grand scheme of problems with this comic, very small, but I think it's worth pointing out. I don't need to go like super into this, but I think this is microcosmic example of how this comic struggles with understanding its own pathos basically anyway you mentioned a couple things that i thought were interesting one of which is that biddy says i know this is samuel but i have no idea how that could have been offensive did you want to talk about that at all really all i want to point out about this is that obviously biddy thinks he said something offensive or something that other people would have found offensive with the implication being that a lot of sjw's i guess who are on the look out for microaggressions populate the Samwell campus? Question mark? I would assume yes and this was also the height of the first wave of what I would call SJW culture between 2012 and 2015. So this is possibly just in reaction to things that were happening on Tumblr at the time. Or I mean in, in her memory of college Oh, sure. Or at SCAD at the time, because of course she's winding down, or I guess at this point, starting up her second year. Yeah, I would assume so. In my memory, SJW stuff wasn't quite at its peak until I was out of college, so I was thinking about it as mostly an online thing, but yeah, very possibly not. I mean, I realize that the term or the acronym SJW had a very pointed meaning for online culture circa the 2010s. But I do think it's worth pointing out that cultural sensitivity and sensitivity for social justice is like a long-term quality of higher education, not in a bad way. College students tend to be sort of on the fore of developing social and cultural mores. And I think it's been, you know, a long time joke about how there's a tension between colleges as a bastion of free thought and college students being really PC and being coddled and not wanting to offend. So, you know, I guess there's some kind of discourse on campus at this time that Biddy is aware of. And of course, he has his head stuck up his ass and he's not aware of fucking anything. So the fact that Biddy reads Samwell this way either speaks to how the people who go to Samwell think about Samwell or how Biddy specifically thinks about Samwell. 
It's just I, interesting, just a cool background detail. Yeah, what I think is really interesting about it is that the way that he says it suggests to me that he isn't fully part of and aware of how things are offensive and so is worried about offending rather than worried about looking out for offenses. And that tells me both something about Biddy as a character and also the position of where he is on campus. And to me, this is probably not meant to be, but slightly critical of that. <laughs> I mean, to me, there's like a very slightly critical, not in a critical thinking way, but in a making critique about ridiculous offenses or something. So I don't think that that's at all what was meant. Like, I don't think that Biddy, you know, has bad political opinions at this point of the comic. I don't think he has any political opinions at this point of the comic. But I do think that that's interesting because that's a little bit how I read that. The other thing I thought that was interesting that you noted was that this is the first time we see Lardo really hanging out with everyone in a social way rather than in her capacity as manager. Yeah, and again, I mean, I don't know. I am kind of starting to feel bad about like hammering home on these things and nitpicking these things. But at the same time, it's like we're reading the comic again. We're thinking about it. And it is really interesting the number of assumptions I have about this comic and about this story, which are in fact not actually borne out by the story itself, or at least not throughout the entire comic. And one of those is that Lardo is like part of the friend group and that the main cast is these six people. This is really the first time we've seen these six people together at all. So I realize that she'll be slightly more present the next year, or at least that's my memory of the comic. But it's interesting, you know, just the same way that Shitty and Jack have had one half interaction, the fact that Lardo has not been seen to hang out with the friend group contradicts assumptions I had about what the content of the story was. And again, it's obviously because things were being constructed very differently in the paratext, the things supporting how you're supposed to read the text. The point of the paratext is that it's trying to tell you how to interpret the comic. So what you're supposed to interpret is that they hang out like this all the time. But if you're just reading the comic, this is the first and possibly only time you're seeing this particular thing happening. Well, again, the comic gestures at things and then asks you to do a lot of work and bring expectations of genre to those moments. This is one of them. So then we get the, just I guess the one point I want to make about dibs so that everybody sort of understands what it means. Dibs are basically the right of first refusal. It's the right to choose to live in the house. You have dibs on the house. Just because you have dibs doesn't mean you have to move in. You can decline or pass or not move in. This is also a good place to mention that in this comic, it's mentioned that you can put your room up into a lottery system. So in the next... I guess it's two years from this point at sort of the tail end of year three, we'll have a dilemma between two people wanting to claim Lardo's room in the house and Lardo's like, I don't know what to do. And then Biddy's like, why don't you do a coin toss or something like that? It's like, well, she could have just put her room in the lottery system, but I guess 
the lottery system isn't used very commonly, but there's also this point that why would you put your room in the lottery system? Because the point of this dib system is, is to extract concessions from people who want your room. And in this sense, uh, this dib system is actually an extension of a toxic hockey culture where you create hazing opportunities and use your power imbalance to leverage things out of other people. And that's the kind of culture that I thought this comic was supposed to be addressing. And it's really nice in that sense, I suppose. Not just that Biddy gets his dibs by plot device rather than having to do things for somebody, but it's also nice how after Biddy gets his room, this system of servitude seems to crumble and everybody in the comic who gets dibs after this basically gets them due to like moral rectitude. The one person who seems to think from this point that the dib system works as it had up to 1.23 is Dex, who does a bunch of things like the things that Ransom, Holster, and Shitty are describing here in terms of service in exchange for dibs. And he's basically rebuffed. Do I think there's much to read out of this? No. But I find it interesting that when the comic wants to be cute about the things that are toxic elements of hockey culture, it just sort of shaves the edge off or sands the jagged edges down from the practice so that instead of being beat with a hockey stick or made to suck dicks or something, you have to give somebody back rubs or, you know, she has an eye patch rather than something really horrible, which is the kind of thing that, you know, college-age hockey bros probably would want to extract from somebody. I'm also thinking this is around the time, I mean, there are always reckonings about frat hazing, but this was around the time that a couple people died from hazing incidents, in my awareness, and so I wonder if maybe this was no longer no longer felt like Ngozi was able to make it cute or was like interested in making it cute I don't know I don't know I think the only thing I can take from it is that Biddy's sunshiny presence just magically makes everyone want to be nice to each other without any unpacking or thinking at all of any systems so okay then the one person who doesn't say that they had to do jack shit to move into this house actually it's it's Jack so uh Jack doesn't make any comment on how he got dibs which is really interesting because up to recently, he's been an asshole who nobody liked. So where did Jack get dibs from? I mean, the comic doesn't tell us, so who knows? But I just think it's interesting that it's like, why would anybody be like, I want you to live in my old room, Jack? Well, it's either somebody was like, oh, it's bad Bob Zimmerman's kid. He should be in the hockey house. He's the captain, blah, blah, blah. Or it's something deeply humiliating and sexual that he doesn't want to share. Or it's another deus ex machina that we don't know about because like it doesn't matter i mean and that's really what it is right jack lives in the house so that he can live across from biddy if we look at it narratively that's why that is the comic doesn't really care why he is living in the house other than to put him in situations where now sometimes someone will see someone else in the shower but i prefer to think about deeply humiliating rituals that jack will never tell anyone about but sometimes wakes up in the middle of the night and it's like i really did that and for this for shitty to lie naked in my bed you know yeah i do know i know i know any Including thoughts about 1.23 dibs because I think I, that's really all I've got here. 
Yeah, I was really trying to think like I walked to my mailbox and then I walked to get a package and then I walked back and then I opened the package and then I looked at the things inside the package and then I was like, maybe any of these things will make me think one thing about the comic 1.23 dibs and it didn't. I was unable to come up with much more than we already had. So that's all I got. But we can think a little bit about the year in total. The year in total is how I'm always thinking. So you asked, did this self-contained season of the story tell a complete story and anything that you might want to cut or change? So do you have thoughts about that? Yeah. So having gotten to the end of this one season of the comic... I actually feel like as a self-contained standalone thing, without looking at it too deeply or too nitpicky, it actually really works on its own. We start with Biddy as a fish out of water who doesn't know what the hell is going on, and then he makes friends with everybody, and by the end of the comic, he is moving into the house, and the one guy who didn't like him doesn't not like him anymore. and. That is a little standalone story with a beginning, a middle, and an end. We don't know anything about Biddy going to school. We have no idea how he's doing with the rest of college. But he started afraid to take a check, and he little by little got better. And at the end of the year, he took a check. And even though it injured him grievously, it also didn't ruin his life. And it seems like he's going to keep playing hockey. So as a little self-contained narrative, it stands on its own. I think the coming out storyline is, in this sense, part of his acclimating to the hockey team and like settling into college. I think it's less of a sort of standalone thread on its own, especially since it really only takes up those two strips. So it's part of the larger narrative arc. It's not carrying over. It's mostly self-contained. In terms of what I'd change, thinking about it as part of the larger story of Check, Please, I think even though we're relatively early on here and the cast is really pretty small, like the most manageable it could possibly be, I think we probably needed to see a lot more interaction between Biddy and Jack. And I think possibly there should have been either a lot more about, well, I'm not even going to say there possibly should have been a lot more about hockey because ultimately comics aren't really about hockey. There is a hockey plot line, so maybe we should have seen more about hockey, but I think probably what would have been a lot richer is if there had just been like a lot more character development work. Why don't we have B-plots about shitty Ransom, Holster, and Lardo? What are they doing here? They're just sitting on the couch grilling burgers, saying nothing? Why are these characters in this comic? I wish we hadn't had a strip introducing the frogs. I don't think Lardo really needs to be here at all. I mean, my preference would be for her to have something to do, but if you're not going to end up using her when we get to, you know, the other side of this story as a whole, the point of her being in the story, I really seriously think was just to be a female face. Okay. I also feel like perhaps Biddy's mother should have come back, and perhaps we should have gotten a beat on the outro end of year one about Jack and his issues and his dad. We should have revisited that because it was raised and it hasn't really been part of the text for a while. Yes, I think all of those make sense to me. I think there could possibly be multiple ways of 
of doing these things. But the number one thing I would change would be, I guess, to tighten the project, by which I mean to decide which threads are really going to carry through for the next three years. And then even if you don't go back and change year one, to really make sure that you have a tight handle on what you're going to examine over the next several years. As it is, we've discussed before how our favorite comic, Doonesbury, which by the way, I've really not read very much of, but have enjoyed what I have read because my grandpa really liked it and we read it together. Anyway, don't worry about it. The point is that comic is long running, has a very large cast and time does move. Like characters get older and change during that comic, but because it's over a long period of time, there's a lot more flexibility about raising a character, dropping them, raising a thread, dropping it, revisiting, changing how the plot is going to work. Because Check, Please is so finite, because it is essentially a graphic novel rather than a comic strip, as Secret mentioned below these many episodes ago, what I would really hope to change would be that Ngozi recognized that this was going to be a graphic novel and to start treating it as one. Whether that means leaving the frogs in in year one and then just making sure that you address them as characters with their own complex arcs or something, like that would have been fine too. You know what I mean? But thinking about year one, even as just like a sort of flawed but fun exploration that then turned into a project, I think its real problem is that it raises these questions and then doesn't actually ever do anything with them. The other thing I would say pacing wise is I would put Biddy coming up to shitty at the end of year one. I think that would make a more impactful year one in part because I understand that it was the climax of the first half of the year, but I think that the tension raised by Biddy having recently come out us not being sure who knew at the same time that we're starting to recognize that Biddy has a crush on Jack would be really interesting and would have been a fulfillment of that expectation of the children's novel that I mentioned before, the sort of like fulfillment of this ritual of coming of age. Now, I don't think coming out is a ritual of coming of age, and I actually think that's a really fucked up thing. However, this is how Check, Please treats it. And so if Check, Please is going to treat coming out as a necessary component of coming of age, well, then one way to push on these rituals of hockey bro hazing would be to contrast that to the coming out and Shitty's acceptance of who Biddy is and all these things. And so I think maybe that's one thing I would change. But other than that, yeah, detail-wise, I, I basically agree with you. I don't have much to add to that. I wish we had seen more of questioning of what was going on in the story from Biddy or from the characters within the story. The most pointed thing I can think of is... After Biddy got horribly checked and had a concussion, I wish we had seen him maybe grappling with that a little more, basically going through the process of like, should I even keep playing hockey? Is it even worth it? So that his decision to continue could have been an affirmative choice. And that constantly, if the story was check plays, was like a process of Biddy continuing to choose to play hockey instead of being in it and not examining it. I think that would actually further the goal of questioning what's going on with hockey, which apparently is what this comic is doing or something. Especially because that would pair nicely with Jack, 
who is inherently tied to hockey and doesn't question it. So that would be an interesting, not tension between the two characters and that it's a conflict between them, but a tension between why do people do things? Why do people play this particular sport? I also think maybe it would have been nice if this had been a decision that was made through Biddy talking to Jack. You know, if they had had some sort of fucking conversation where Jack was like, listen, even though I've never been checked like that and gotten a concussion, these are the things that happened to me. And here's why I felt like I had to keep playing, but only you can decide if you want to play this. And then Biddy was like, okay, I'm gonna keep playing, I guess there's risk in everything you do in life. So I'll just have to keep doing this. And then also the subtext of him having developed a crush on Jack would be like subtext to the larger question of risks and so on and so forth. But uh, that's just, you know, as Ngozi said, I just wrote a fiction. So I have had this thought three times in our recording so far, and then I kept forgetting it but that made me remember it again. This is not a story about hockey, but it is a story about the pathos of being on a team. Now the team could be a hockey team or it could be the team of being in a relationship or it could be a team in the sense of like your group of friends as a team or something. But it's certainly about that. And what I would really have loved is rather than this dancing around the hockey culture through hockey shit strips and through occasional hockey games, although obviously like, all those things can stay, whatever. But I think something that would have really helped this and that would have been benefited by exactly what you were just discussing is what it means to be part of a team and to be willing to sort of sacrifice your individuality and safety to a certain extent for a team. And then that speaks very heavily with the decision that Jack and Biddy make to come out in a way that is okay in the comic, everything works out fine. But in real life, it would have been a somewhat dangerous decision in terms of career, in terms of even physical safety, depending on career and so on and so forth to like kiss on the ice after the cup. So I think that thinking about the pathos of what it means and by pathos, you know, for anyone who hasn't been forced to listen to someone talk to you about Aristotle, pathos is the emotional argument for why you should do something. But in this sense, I'm talking about sort of the emotional heart of the work and getting at the, the emotional parts of being on a team. The whole question of whether Biddy is in a community or isn't, if Biddy is in a team or is a fish out of water who feels alienated from a team. The story is about learning how to assimilate, as we've discussed, learning how to assimilate into a team. And I think that actually thinking about A, how Biddy changes in order to fit into the team and B, how Jack's backstory of being so committed to a team that he self-destructs would be much more impactful if we actually saw any real, even just locker room banter or something. Real locker room banter, not five seconds in the locker room. Or the real kinds of conversations of someone just saying like, bro, do you think it's worth it? And then someone else being like, yeah, it is. You know, I don't mind so much if the actual hockey play is not on screen, even though it's fun. But what I really wish is that team dynamics had been explored in a meaningful way in this first year because I think it would have cast a more interesting foreshadow. Just in terms of a wish list, I wish we had seen more about, I don't know, Biddy like exploring his interests and developing a sense of self. 
I feel like, you know, I don't know. I mean, there's so much, like, there's so much in this fandom in terms of discourse about he doesn't have any queer friends and he hasn't dated anybody. And I, I agree that those are salient criticisms. Why couldn't there have been a comic about that in this year? Well, I mean, the answer is because there wasn't a big enough fandom and the tone hadn't changed around fandom enough for there to be a group of critics making that observation. But, you know, in terms of storytelling, all of this stuff that gets like shoehorned into the last, I don't know, two thirds of the final year of the comic almost feels like it's coming out of nowhere except for fandom discourse because it's not sewn into the comic. And the fact is, I think this first year of the comic feels a little emptier then the comic will start to feel because there's fewer characters and there's fewer plot threads and there's fewer locations. Like as soon as Jack goes to the NHL, your entire comic is sort of like rend in two in terms of like where it needs to be because it has to follow two characters. So there's just a lot more room in this year of the comic and it feels a little emptier. We don't have as much to balance, as much to juggle. And I feel like if the point of this year was going to be exploratory in terms of getting Biddy used to the culture of things, if Biddy ultimately wants to be a representative of living your true life, some of that should have been sewn in here. And if he's going to end up as a YouTuber with a book deal, I mean, his fucking baking thing at this point still feels just basically like an inside joke. It's not even necessarily flanderized yet to the point of it being annoying. He doesn't show up to them sitting on the lawn in front of the house with 15 pies. It's just something in the background of the comic that he enjoys doing. So I feel like, I don't know, there was room here maybe to kind of establish what his interests were and that they were things that maybe were in the background for later when they become relevant. But again... A lot of these criticisms are hard to make because I understand that this was something that was written not all at once. So the idea of looking at the full text and saying, okay, well, now it's a full text. How do we revise it so that it makes sense as a holistic thing is something you can really only do from the vantage point with which we're addressing the comic in this podcast. It's not something the author was ever doing, but I think it's instructive in terms of thinking through how storytelling works and also in terms of contextualizing this particular comic, figuring out why are the parts of it that are satisfying, satisfying, and why are the parts of it that are dissatisfying, dissatisfying. I feel like there's a very different feeling and a very different tone in the first year of the comic. And I don't just think it's because the art improved as time went on. I don't necessarily even think it's just because there are so many fewer locations and so many fewer characters and so many fewer plot lines, for lack of a better word to squeeze in. I think the tone is totally different. I think there is a sort of lack of seriousness with which the comic would later come to take itself. Not that there isn't serious subject matter. We've had homophobia and suicide and probably some other things of daddy issues. So it's like, there's a lot of things going on in the comic. It's not that there isn't weight, but I think the comic started eventually to take itself more seriously and it's 
not doing that in this first year. Something about what this comic was shifts. Yeah. I cannot agree more. And I also think that the comic's starting to take itself seriously because of its lack of understanding from my perspective of what certain aspects of Biddy's reality would be like very much does not benefit the comic. I think if it had stayed more lighthearted, if it hadn't taken on the responsibility of unpacking these things about hockey and the conversation about it had not turned in that direction, or if the fan conversation had turned in that direction, but the sort of way that Ngozi talked about the comic and the way the comic kind of thought about itself, if that makes sense, had not also taken that more serious turn, it it would have been fine. But because the comic ends up taking on this immense social responsibility for itself, or because it's given that responsibility and not denied, it ends up falling really short. And I'm also sorry for the comparison I'm about to make, which is not to Homestuck, but is to noted television phenomenon Glee, which I didn't watch very much of because I didn't like it, but which started, if you watch the very first couple of episodes, started as an obvious parody and then quickly took itself extremely seriously and much to its detriment. And actually this very much reminds me of that. It reminds me of this genre savvy, wink at the audience. I wouldn't say that Chuck Please was ever a parody, but was sort of lightheartedly engaging with tropes. And then when it decided to take itself very earnestly, all of a sudden it turns out that those tropes actually cannot by themselves carry a serious story. They do not have the infrastructure to really meaningfully examine the things that make the tropes problematic, which I don't mean in the way that the internet uses, but I mean in a sort of academic way, i.e. something to unpack. And I don't know. I think that if the comic had remained sort of slice of life or had just accepted that it was a romance and was not also a text providing a certain kind of representation or social, I don't know, justice of some kind, I guess is what I'll go with. I think the comic would have been much better. Glee is the kind of show that you'd think I would be into because I am a big musical kind of nerd and I like cover songs when they're done well. And in fact, I even like a couple of cover songs from Glee that have come onto my Spotify for some reason. But something about it just like seemed weird. And I remember just being like, what is going on? I don't have any thoughts about Glee, except I saw the first episode when I was home from college over winter break. Anyway, I was visiting my parents and I watched it on their couch and I was like, this is pretty funny. This is making fun of theater kids. Ha ha. And then I watched it more and I was like, oh no, this is neither here nor there. I did write a Glee fanfic once. It was about an original character. Don't worry about it. I know there are some people who are or have been in Check Please fandom who were in Glee fandom. Yeah. If you were in Glee fandom and you have opinions about it that aren't like too painful to drag up, is that a word? Drag up? Whatever. You get me. Uh, tell us about it. How did it compare? I think the phrase you're looking for is dredge up. That is exactly what I was looking for. And then I started thinking about the dregs of society, you know, like where Glee belongs. Um, No, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I think that's all I have to say. You got anything else? Yeah, well, I have a couple things. Well, maybe only one. Um, We, I think by the time this episode is posted, we will have recorded a special episode. And as of right now, the poll 
is uh, very heavily in favor of weirdest fandom discourse slash fail fandom anon. So I think we're going to have some thinking to do about weird fandom discourses. However, of course, if we get an influx of votes that are for something else like listener Q&A, we could be doing a completely different episode next time on Shack Displeased. I am excited because if it's the FFA discourse situation, that means I have an excuse to go back through the FFA archives, which I do do any... <laughs> do do, I'm sorry. <laughs> that was really stupid. But, <laughs> okay. I'm sorry that that was really stupid, but it really cracked me up. For some reason, that what this reminds me of is there's a line on The Simpsons where I don't know why, but Homer Simpson goes like, Scooby-Doo can doo-doo, but Jimmy Carter is smarter. And I forget what the context is, but that's... He spoke last night at the DNC, you know. Really? Just completely lost thread. I'm sorry. Oh, wait, I need to get myself under control. But I don't know why I'm just... All right, well, uh, next time on Check This, Please. Special episode, possibly about Scooby-Doo. It's been a pleasure. Who are you? Who, who have I been with this whole time? I'm secret. Oh, fuck. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, there's some, some passing wildlife. Listen, listen, guys. There's this fox in my neighborhood, and I have, like, a, like a motion sensor, like, light on my front porch. So whenever the fox comes to, like, eat my vegetables, the light goes on. Don't worry about it. I'm secret. People can find me on Tumblr at Camillier, C-A-M-I-L-L-I-A-R, or I have some general fandom meta and South Park content on my other Tumblr, S-K-R-T-O-N-G. Also, I have an AO3 at Familiar, and I have written so much fanfic. Please come read it. I'd love to hear your thoughts. I love Concrete. Rip me a new one. It's problematic. I think you should also all go read Secrets Fic because whether or not you want to rip a new one after you read it, you'll definitely feel like someone got ripped something. This is a really terrible... I really lost it at the Scooby-Doo situation. I'm still recovering. Wait, okay. I know that I love to talk about Secrets Fic, so apologies, everybody, but Secret recently wrote a couple different fics, which I am excited about. One of which is about Jack Zimmerman's good period in a lifelong heroin addiction. So you guys should all go read it. You can find me not necessarily, but possibly always writing about Jack Zimmerman's heroin addiction at tomatowrites.tumblr.com, or you can find me on AO3 at tomato underscore greens. You can find our podcast at checkdisplease.tumblr.com or on Podbean or on Spotify. And that's it. That's all I got. It's really hot here. Is it hot there? It's like truly disgusting here. No, but it's been raining and it is humid. And I was doing Pilates today. And even though, you know, being in like the low 20s, that's like what, like the low 70s, I was sweating my ass off because it was just so muggy. And last night I took a shower and my goddamn bathroom was like the rainforest. 
Well, that's our update on our horrible climbs. I hope you guys are all doing okay out there. Should I leave that in or not? Whatever you want, you know. Yeah, next time we're going to be back with a special episode and we think it's going to be about discourse. But, you know, things could change before the poll closes 18 hours from now or whatever it is. Oh, I think it's 36. Look, math is not my thing. Here's the deal. I am so grateful to everybody who has listened to this podcast. I realized that like, It feels like we're constantly marking milestones on this podcast and that all we do is like congratulate ourselves for doing the podcast. We have four and a half listeners and it's like the greatest podcast of all time. But honestly, I think it's really cool. I think it's really cool that we've covered a quarter of this webcomic. That's so crazy. Somebody a couple days ago said something to me about like, it's going to be a long time until you guys talk about Kent Parson. It'll probably be months. And I was like, no, it's seven comics from now. And we do two of them a week. So it'll be really soon. And I think just to stay optimistic, genuinely, I think we're going to need about nine episodes to cover that arc. Oh, I am off my rocker about it. I also want to say that this has been a really, really gratifying project for me, just to self-congratulate a little bit more. And I'm really grateful that everyone who's listening actually listens. I'm super psyched that people care enough to respond to polls. I mean, for me, this is like the most incredible thing that's ever happened to me. So I'm really excited about it. And this has also been a project that has kept me a little bit saner than I would have been during a time of complete and utter chaos and destruction in the world. Some needed, some horrible. So thanks everybody for listening. And I hope, you know, I hope you're doing okay out there in this weird time we live in. Yeah, listen, it's it's okay to nominate us for Hugo's. And I definitely think that somebody should submit this podcast to the rec center because I think Gavia Baker-Whitelaw and Elizabeth Minkle would really enjoy it. Where is Flourish Clink? I'm thinking about, this is not related. I'm thinking about sending them a phone call message, but not about check, please. Oh my God. Listen, I thought about writing them like an anonymous message or whatever on their like anonymous message get in touch with us board or whatever because there is a scholar who uses the phraseology being a fan of feminism in the fanish sense and i can see the grimace on your face and i really just wanted to shit on this concept in public somewhere but you know anonymous well the reason i wanted to ask is that okay no names but someone whose name rhymes with Tavia Snaker Bite Law has an opinion about a social media AU, which I is garbage and don't care about. But let's move on from that. The thing that I'm really interested in is that the way that people tell stories is getting really, really intertwined, not only with their personal opinions about fiction, but because it's on social media, whether it's on Twitter or on Tumblr, you get this like mashup in a way that's a little bit different than LJ because of friends lists. Like there's less separation between work and author. And I just want to ask them about that. My last hot take before we wrap up here is that I think that this is not just a check, please podcast. It's also a stealth fan studies podcast. So that's where I'm at. Crazy Town 2020. We have to end this. You can tell this was like an episode of Check Please that like truly did not have very much content in it because this is where we are. This is where we're at. This whole thing was very loosey-goosey. My cat started biting my neck at one point. Now he's over there. We we gotta put it to bed, man. We gotta okay. be done. Okay. Well, I laughed at the word. <laughs> 
do do and now I'm laughing again so like clearly we're in something anyway goodbye